Uh, you picked a great Sunday to come, not just because Toronto Mass Choir is here, but we're starting a brand new series today in the biblical book of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I would like you to open it up. We're going to do a good old-fashioned Bible study in the book of Daniel. We're going to get deep into this text, as deep as we possibly can. I've heard it said before that the, uh, that the Word of God is shallow enough for a child to uh, dabble in, but deep enough for an elephant to swim in. So we may not get quite deep enough as an elephant to swim in it, but we're going to get as deep as we possibly can. This is one of those series where I would love for you to bring your Bible each and every week and jot down notes and highlight things and write things down. If you're using one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you, do not write on that Bible. That Bible belongs to us. You can put it right back where you found it when we're done without any markings. But bring your own Bible, bring your tablet, bring your uh, device or whatever, hook up to the Wi-Fi in here. We'll be in Daniel chapter 1. It's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. Daniel was a prophet during Israel's captivity to Babylon. And what we're going to do to start uh, this morning is read Daniel chapter 1 in its entirety. And then we'll go back and pick it apart and attempt to learn from it. I'll wait till I hear pages stop flipping and we'll get right into the text. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king in Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, that's Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonian culture there. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord the king who has assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? Why would you endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh, that means buffer, than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding and all vision and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they would be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them 
And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Would you pray with me? God, the first words out of my mouth just now, we're going to be, we come before you this morning with humble hearts, and yet the truth really is that our desire is to come before you with humble hearts, to come before you with open hands, that you would teach us something about yourself, teach us about us, teach us about our families, about our culture, teach us something in our head also, God, but teach us something in our heart that we may not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to speak to us this morning in the name of Christ, the people of God together said, Amen. Amen. The very first thing that you need to know about the book of Daniel is Daniel is a book about God. Daniel's a book about God. Daniel is not about Daniel. Daniel is a book about God. The primary purpose of the book of Daniel is to reveal to us things about God. Tremper Longman wrote a commentary, uh, the NIV application commentary. Uh, he's a brilliant scholar and theologian and Bible guy, and he writes this in his commentary. He says, the primary purpose for these texts, he's writing about Daniel, is not to teach us how to behave, but rather to point us to God. Daniel is first and foremost a revelation of God. Now, God does not reveal himself to us in the abstract, but rather in relationship to his people and through his actions in history. In other words, Daniel is a book about God. Let's use an analogy, put it this way. Let's say you planted a seed in your yard and that seed grew into a tree. And when you planted the seed, you had no idea what the seed was. And the seed grew roots and the seed grew a trunk and the seed grew leaves and eventually the seed began to bear fruit and that fruit was apples. What could you conclude was the seed that you planted? It's not a trick question. It's an apple seed, right? It's an apple seed. In the very same way, what we're going to see in the fruit of Daniel's behavior is really rooted in the roots of God's sovereignty. What we're going to see is something happening under the surface throughout the scope of the book of Daniel. Daniel is not a book about Daniel. Daniel is not a book about Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is not a book about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. If you grew up in church, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I prefer to call them by their Hebrew names. Daniel is a book about God. So in our journey today through chapter 1, and even in our journey subsequently through chapters 2 through 12, remember that we are always looking underneath the surface. Uh, it, 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 let me give you another illustration. It's like a loon on the surface of the water. Do you know what a loon is? It's not just this. You know that's a real bird, apparently, that they put on a coin? It was like, a, it's actually a real bird. I was surprised to know that this week. I thought it was a cartoon bird that someone had made up. It's a bird. A loon. So, a loon, 
exist mostly on the surface of the water. They're not really good at flying. It takes them about a half a kilometer to get taken off. Can you believe that? Just flapping for half a kilometer. But they're really good underneath the surface of the water. As a matter of fact, they can submerge for one, two, even up to three minutes and grab really slippery things like fish with their teeth and they eat them on the spot and then they come back up and it looks like everything's cool. See, the trick is with the loon that there's a lot going on underneath the surface that you don't see up on that top layer. In the very same way, we have to look at the fruit of Daniel's life, but to see the theological underpinnings. Do you see where I'm going with that? The roots. What is this telling us about God? That's what we're going to be on the lookout for all morning and throughout the series. In uh, chapter 1, Daniel bookends the chapter with verse 1 and verse 21, and by doing so, he locates the events of the book of Daniel in a very specific time in human history. Daniel writes this, he says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, uh, and then he concludes the book, and Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. What we know from the Bible and from uh, extra biblical sources, namely the Babylonian Chronicle, included in the Babylonian Chronicle is a book called the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle, and from Chronicles of History is that these events took place between 605 and 537 BCE, that's before Jesus. Anybody remember that? It's pre-internet, mostly, pre-internet here. And so back then, 2,600 years ago, is when these events took place. And that's confirmed not just by the book of Daniel, but by extra-biblical sources. In fact, uh, just a couple thousand miles away from Daniel was another religious man, a guy named Confucius. Have you heard of Confucius? He was a contemporary of Daniel. He's the one that wrote all the things on the fortune cookies. That's Confucius, okay? In case you're wondering who that was. So what happened in 605 BC, in the third year of the reigning of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire were super pagan, extraordinarily pagan, worshipped multiple gods, did not have anything in common with the nation of Israel in terms of culture and religion and faith and God worship. And they come in and besiege Jerusalem. And not only do they sack the capital of the of the. Uh, nation of Israel, the king then commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring youths, and we know they're youths from royal family and noble blood, without blemish of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. So here's what he's doing. He's taking the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the up-and-coming leaders, those who are handsome, those who were skilled with wisdom and knowledge, those who made great decisions, those who were sharp, and he's taking them out of the culture that they're in, and he's trying to reverse and reset that culture and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, synonymous with Babylonian culture. Okay, he sacks Jerusalem, takes the best of the best, and now he's going to brainwash them. Good thing or a bad thing? One, two, three. Bad thing, right? Bad thing. In fact, uh, this word youths here indicates not that Daniel's like in his 20s, but he was probably around 13, 14 years old when this happened to him. And yet he stands by his faith and he continues to worship God in the midst of trials. But here is Daniel, good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, knowledge, competent to stand before the king's palace, and he was a worshiper of God, and now he's in a pagan nation. In other words, Daniel was a stranger in a strange land. 
This is the name of the series. This is where we derived it from. Daniel was a stranger in a strange land. And I don't know about you, Christian, in the room, but I feel like a stranger in a strange land sometimes too. As our very first point of application is that we live in a post-Christian society. We really do. We live in a post-Christian society. We live in a, in a world and in a time and place that has left behind Judeo-Christian values. I don't think our culture was ever really Christian, but we had more in common with our culture and people around us 50, 60, 70 years ago. And now we live in a post-Christian society. There was a time. When the Western world, Western Europe, U.S. and Canada really in large part banked on biblical values, we don't anymore. Let me just illustrate it for you. There's a book I was reading this week called Unchristian by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And they offer this statistic based on some uh, research that they had done. Let's just throw some sins up here. This is some sins that they, they did an interview. Uh, cohabitations, living together before you're married, gambling, sexual fantasies, sex outside of marriage, profanity, drunkenness, that kind of stuff. And they interviewed people and they asked them, are these things morally good or morally bad? Morally good or morally bad? And people over the age of 42, by percentage, said that 33% of them said that this was morally good, morally okay. 38% morally okay, 35% this is morally okay, 17% this is morally okay, drunkenness this is morally okay. Take the age group just below those folks, not even a generation, not even generation, the age group just below, and look how those percentages go up. I mean, that's drastic, right? Like this guy, by and large, could be this guy's dad. It's not even like 50 years, 100 years. It's just a split second. And all of a sudden, these sins are not, these sins that traditionally associated with biblical Judeo-Christian values have gone up. Like, I'm not trying to make a moral statement on these this morning. I'm not saying this is morally bad or morally good because like if you're a Chiefs fan and they start to lose today, that might slip out. Okay, I get it. I get it. I'm not making a moral statement. What I'm saying is that culture has changed. Are you with me? Let's look at these up here. So pornography, abortion, homosexuality, drugs, the F word. Do I have to define what the F word is? I hope not. It's the magic F word. So people over 42 said that these percentage said that these were morally okay. Just one quick observation. Isn't it wild that 6% say the F word is okay, but 27% say abortion's okay? That ought to give you a little indicator as to where we're at as a post-Christian society, don't you think? And watch when you go the generation, not in generation, just a little bit younger, watch those percentages increase. Man, oh man, we live in a post-Christian society. Believers in Christ in the room, I don't think I need to continue to give you uh, kind of evidence to this because you live it day in and day out. I wanted to offer that little bit of statistic, but you live this day in and day out. You know that the culture has kind of left the church. And we have some options in terms of how we respond to this. Daniel had some options in terms of how he responded to being a stranger in a strange land. There's a theologian named H. Richard Niebuhr who wrote a book called Christ in Culture. You may have read that book, especially if you're a, if you're a university student. Uh, it's, it's really a seminal and foundational text for theology, missiology, and sociology in the 20th century. And what Niebuhr does is he tracks over the course of the last 2,000 years five ways in which Christians have chosen to respond to culture. You know, are we going to assimilate with culture? Are we going to you know, kind of transform culture? How 
is that going to look? And one of Niebuhr's five categories, I think, is the way in which I see Canadian Christians and American Christians respond to the culture. And Niebuhr's category is Christ against culture. And the one word kind of to sum it all up is separatist. Separatist. Now, I'm going to pick on Canadian church here for a minute. Then I'm going to pick on American churches, okay? So for those of you who panic when I pick on Canadians, just understand that I'm moving to Americans very, very quickly, okay? So I've lived here now for six and a half years, and one of the things that I've observed about the Canadian church is when the culture has kind of departed us in terms of values, traditional definition of marriage, religious liberty, when does life begin, all that kind of stuff, what we've done is gone insular and we built up walls and, and, and we've kind of ignored culture and said, we're going to cloister ourselves off like a monastery and we're going to retain our values. Yeah, we're going to retain our values, but, but we're not going to engage with culture anymore. We're going to live a separatist mentality. See, that's not the biblical model, not just from Jesus, but even from 2,600 years ago, that's not how Daniel lived. The thing about the U.S., about U.S. churches, this is one thing I've observed, uh, having been born in the U.S. And, and pastored in the U.S. for a long time, is that in the U.S., we, we do the same thing. We go separatist, but we're not as polite. You know that? You ever realize that about Americans? Canadians, very polite. Americans, even more polite, you know? Um, so here's what we do. Canadians do the separatist thing. They totally ignore culture, right? And for, and for the, in, in the U.S., what happens is that we get angry and yell at culture. You watch the news? We try to coerce. We try to retain cultural and Christian values. That's what we try to do. And Daniel doesn't do any of those things. So before we get to Daniel's behavior, let's look at the theological underpinnings. Before we learn from his behavior and learn that there's a different way to engage with culture around us when we feel like a stranger in a strange land, let's look at the value that is the foundation for all of this. And it's reflected there in verse two. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Listen, Babylon comes in and sacks Jerusalem and takes all the youth out. Good thing or bad thing? Bad. Thank you, Kaya. <laughs> and the rest of you, learn. <laughs> come here, come here, babe. Just, hey, I just want to kiss. Come here. I love you. I love you. Thank you. The rest of you guys are the worst. And yet look up here on the screen, who's in control? God's in control. He gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Friends, despite present appearances, God is always in control. This is what the roots of Daniel's behavior are. 
It's not that he's trying to be a good guy or he's trying to like modify his behavior in order to live up to God's expectations. He knows full well that God is in control. So I don't have to be a separatist. I don't have to coerce. I don't have to, I don't have to do any of those things. I can just live as a Christian or live as a God-fearer in a non-God-fearing world. Because despite present circumstances, God is in control. If you were to ask me if there's one thing theologically, one, one that I can build my life on, I'll, I'll believe just one thing, Pastor, you just tell me one thing, the sovereignty of God, that he's always in control. That when Christ went to the cross, he was in control. When you lost your job, he was in control. When your kid went off the rails, he was in control. When you got that diagnosis, he was in control. And it causes us now not to have to exercise control over our circumstances, but allow God to control our circumstances because despite present appearances, he's in control. No matter how bad you think life got, he is always in control. I love you, babe. We're just gonna keep talking. I'm just gonna... I'm actually going to try to wrap this up, just spend the rest of the day with her. <laughs> this is what Peter is saying to the church when he writes to the church and says this, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Like when you're persecuted for your faith, when things don't go all that well for you, when you come into your workplace or your school, your relationships with these biblical values and people don't share them, don't look around and go, what is happening? This is weird. And we live in a post Christian world, my friends, so trials and temptations are typical for the Christian. We go through these each and every day, and God is not surprised by that because despite present appearances, God is always in control. So here's the deal. Because Daniel knows this, because he's got the roots, because he knows what's going on underneath the surface, watch what he does. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Or with the wine that he drank, therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I believe that in this one verse, this one verse, Daniel gives us several keys to engaging with a hostile culture. Daniel gives us a couple of keys to being a stranger in a strange land. When our convictions are challenged, when trials come upon us, when the culture around us doesn't share our values, what do we do and how do we do it? Number one, you choose wisely. Choose wisely. If you're jotting down notes, please jot this down. In the margin of your Bible even, I would love you to just stick with me right there in the scripture in the knowledge of your, in, in the margin of your Bible. So choose wisely. Let me show you how Daniel makes an extraordinarily wise choice here. The first thing that happens is that Daniel's taken out of his land and he is taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And did you catch it? It was supposed to be over the course of three years. Not only that, the chief of the eunuchs gave Daniel and his friends new names. Instead of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were now Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Rather than Hebrew names that called attention to Yahweh, they were given Babylonian names that called attention to Babylonian gods. This is not a good thing. In fact, there are commentators that argue that at some point, Daniel and his friends became literal eunuchs in their service to the king. In other words, everything has been taken from them. Their gender even, perhaps, or the external markings of their gender. 
their literature, their language. They've been given new names. I mean, everything has changed. And Daniel, one time after another, doesn't dig his heels in, doesn't fight back, doesn't say no. You know why? Because we hadn't broken God's law yet. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Now we're about to break God's law. And now Daniel digs his heels in. Do you see it? Do you see how wisely he's chosen? The issue with the food wasn't that it wasn't kosher necessarily. It was that it had been sacrificed to Babylonian gods, which would have been idols for Daniel. And Daniel says, you know what? You can teach me new literature. That's fine. I'll read some stuff. You can teach me a new language. You can even give me a new name. But the minute you ask me to partake of food that's been sacrificed to idols, I know that violates God's law and I'm not going to do it. He makes such a wise choice. Men and women of God, I would just encourage you, especially as you observe things in our culture that are departures from your Judeo-Christian values, to choose, and I want to use this language and then I'm going to back off from it right away, but choose your battles wisely. You've ever heard that saying before, choose your battles? You really got to pick your battles. Okay, these aren't battles. These aren't battles. That's how I'm backing off of it. These aren't battles. But I see Christians so often pick up on things and push back on things that really don't really matter. Like, I might tick somebody off this morning, but like that's kind of par for the course at Bayview Glen. So... It would be weird if I didn't, right? It'd be like, hey, he didn't say anything offensive today. That was, I didn't feel the spirit as much. Um, So here's the deal. Starbucks is not trying to take the Christ out of Christmas by not putting mangers on their cups. You know what Starbucks is trying to do? Sell you expensive coffee. And some of you already bought an expensive coffee this morning. I'd like to have a small... Pequeño, is it pequeño? Is that what they say? Pequeño, black coffee. Yes, sir, that will be $9, you know? Like, then you come into church with it. Look, what they've done is some market research that tells them that the best way to sell coffee is to put these things on their cups. They're not, try, they're not trying to, Disneyland is not trying to take away your faith values and brainwash the world. And why do you care they're in Florida anyway? They're not even here. Again, we get up in arms about these things biblically. We have not chosen our battles wisely. We really haven't. Like, why would we expect culture to abide by the laws of God? They have no reason to. They have no reason to. The the, the message of Scripture to those who don't abide by the laws of God is not abide by the laws of God. The message of scripture to those who don't abide by the laws of God is repent and experience grace. That's very, very different. That's very, very different. And so what Daniel encourages us to do by way of example is to be a Christian in culture, but not try to make the culture Christian. See, that's, that's a very different mindset. As I can be light in the darkness and I can be salt of the earth, but I don't have to be the one who tells everybody what to do. Daniel says, this is for me and my guys Because we come from this background and we're not going to violate God's law. You can do this other stuff to us. When it comes to violating God's law, we've chosen wisely and we're just not going to go there. 
Here's the second thing Daniel does that I think is really fascinating. He's respectful. He says to us, be respectful. By way of example, by way of leadership, he says, be respectful. Now watch this. When Daniel resolved that, that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, he therefore did what? Asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Like Daniel didn't go to his boss and say, listen, buddy, fly a kite. You know, take a long walk off a short pier. Like, I'm not doing it. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. You don't know me. You don't know my values. I'm just putting my foot down. That's not what's going to happen. He goes to his boss and respectfully asks, would you permit us, would you allow us not to defile ourselves and break God's law in this way? See, this is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 13 when he addresses Christians in the church today. He says, let each person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So Daniel, what he does is he's able to submit himself to an ungodly leader. He's able to submit himself to a boss that doesn't share his Yahwistic values. He's able to do so. Why? Remember, what are we looking for the whole time? We're looking for the roots, aren't we? We're looking for the theology. We're looking for who God is, not what Daniel does. And why is it that Daniel, why is it that Daniel can submit himself to a leader that might not be godly? Because the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. So because God is sovereign, because despite present circumstances, God is in control, despite appearances, God is in control, Daniel can submit himself because he knows that, this, that the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of God. He can direct it wherever he will. And in fact, he does in this particular case. I love, I love that you know, Daniel's boss looks at him and goes, look, dude, I'm just the messenger. The king has told me to put you on this diet. And you're saying, I don't want to go on the diet. So you're putting yourself at risk and you're also putting who at risk? Yours truly. Like, don't do this to me, bro. Like, please. Daniel goes, let's just run a test. Let's just run a 10-day test. You know, get slimmer in 30 days, whatever. Let's just do 10. We'll do 10, Daniel says. And God gave him compassion and favor. Again, God gave. He's in control. He turns the heart of the king. God gave him favor in the eyes of his boss because he was respectful. And he can be respectful because God is always in control. So he doesn't need to coerce. He doesn't need to retreat. What we have in the first chapter of Daniel is a little bit of a model just scratching the surface of how we can interact with a culture with whom we disagree. And the book of Daniel is really fascinating. And today we've just kind of scratched the surface. What we'll see is that these young men begin to trust God in such an extraordinary way because despite present appearances, God is in control. And then in the second half of the book of Daniel, things are going to get apocalyptic. He's going to talk about the future. He's going to talk about all this crazy. Like most pastors stop at chapter six, Daniel one through six, and then there's no more. No, there's five more chapters, six more chapters, like, but it's just really, really difficult. But we're going to go through that too because you know how I like doing hard stuff. You know, it's fun for us. 
more opportunity to be offensive. Mm. But here's what I'd like to do in conclusion today. Here's what, here's what I see in Daniel chapter 1. Because God is so sovereign, Daniel, because God is in control, Daniel is able to instead of sequester himself and retreat from the godless culture around him, he's able to engage in a respectful, winsome, and transformative way. And men and women of God, the, the church in Canada and the church in the U.S., quite frankly, we have been building walls when we should have been building bridges. This has been the case for a very long time. We've been building walls when we should have been building bridges. So let me let, me, let, me let you in on something. God's in control. Always has been, always will be. No, no matter who is premier, no matter what curriculum they introduce into schools, no matter how the impeachment trial did or didn't go, no matter how your boss treats you or responds, no matter how unfairly you may be treated in your workplace or your school or whatever, because of your faith values, it does not mean that God is not in control. He's always in control. And so now it gives us the freedom rather than to sequester ourselves and go insular and go live on a mountainside somewhere with a whole bunch of Christians and oh, all the time. It gives us freedom to build bridges into the lives of others. Stand our ground, hold our convictions in a winsome and respectful way. Isn't that cool? And it's all because God is in control. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's timeless. Thank you that it's fun. Thank you that it's interesting. Thank you that it grabs our attention and keeps our attention and then we learn and grow from it. I would pray, oh God, that we would learn something today in our minds but also in our hearts that we would not be conformed to the patterns of this world but God, we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds and then once we've been transformed, once we've been made new, that we would be renewers in culture. So we are made new to renew so that you would send us out as salt and light in a winsome and respectful way, God, that we would learn from this young 13 or 14-year-old Daniel the ways in which we can engage in a constructive, helpful, and healthy way with the culture around us that many, many times feels hostile. God, use us as bringers of your kingdom message in the world around us. In the name of Christ, with enthusiasm, the people of God said, amen. amen.